Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get started, we have a correction, a clarification, and an all-around great message from a listener, which uh, I'll have Anna excerpt here. Quote, As I'm a Syrian myself, I thought to contact you about a couple of things mentioned during the end of the episode when discussing the Assyrian community. So this was from our episode on the the (laughs) Neo-Assyrians. Right, yeah. (laughs) I apologize for this being really long. No apology needed. There's so much misinformation about Assyrians online, and I just couldn't rest unless I sent a message to clear a few things up. Firstly, a lot of it was accurate. There still is an (laughs) Assyrian... Good job, Amber. There still is an Assyrian community, and despite our best to prove our continuity, sadly, no one really took it seriously until leading Assyriologists started to advocate for it, like Simo Parpola, Jeffrey Kahn, and Stephanie Daly, among others. When Assyria fell, the community remained, and a lot of culture and language was preserved due to the fact that Assyrians were, and to some degree still are, very insular. For a long period of time, it was extremely looked down upon to marry outside of the culture. There are two types of Assyrians, West Assyrians and East Assyrians. They both speak a dialect of Sureth or Surat. They are both one people. There are many sects of Assyrian churches that include Church of the East, Chaldean Church, Syriac Catholic Church, and Syriac Orthodox Church. Assyrians who converted from the Church of the East to Catholicism were given the name Chaldean by the Roman Catholic Church. This is the part that blew my mind. I know. Chaldean <laughs> simply means Catholic in the Assyrian language. Huh. <laughs> this is also blowing my mind. And also, I don't think I know what the word Catholic means. Not something we need to dive into here. But Oh, Catholic means like Catholic and Orthodox as just words mean yes. the same thing. Like Orthodoxy is sort of the like prescribed sort of original um version like version and then heterodoxy is sort of something Branches that breaks away from that, that okay. or or differ differs from that that's what the catholic church means and that's huh. what the orthodox church means that's what orthodox judaism means it's something that is defined as sort of usually self-defined as mm-hmm. like the original like sort of like correct and proper and okay. then outside of that is is sort of like breaking away but in sort of english catholic like orthodox still is used in english to describe things that aren't churches yeah Um, you talk about unorthodox methods yeah and but catholic in english is it really only is (laughs) he uses uncatholic methods well no it's like i don't think there's like a no i know but but like well but i'm just i'm trying to we're we're doing clarification here, not jokes. Um, so it doesn't really have that meaning anymore. Okay. But so like the fact that like Chaldean just means Catholic, which, Whoa. Whoa. yeah. So go c- returning to this, this email. Yes. 
Interestingly enough, Ethiopians that were also converted from the Orthodox Church to Catholicism were also called Chaldean. This was part of a concerted effort on the part of the Roman Catholic Church to convert the members of the Church of the East to Catholicism and bring them under the hegemony of the papacy. I also want to mention that the term Aramean has nothing to do with the Assyrian community. The ancient Aramean heartland was the region west of the Euphrates, and its heritage is best kept by the people of Malula, Jubadin, and Asarcha in southern Damascus today. They speak the language closest to the language Jesus spoke, Western Aramaic. It is slightly different to the language that Assyrians speak. Assyrians, much like many groups in the region, had an evolution in their language. Aramaic is a broad language with various forms. Assyrian slash Syriac is one of them. Western Aramaic being another one and Mandaic. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. Um, also, um, you know, like really proving once again that Amber doesn't know a thing about linguistics. Um, but this, this listener, uh, then went on in this email to, which again, not too long. It was great. Um, to recommend some potential guests and sources who are specialists on the subject of Assyrian identity and continuity. And I am so, so excited to pursue that in the future. So mm-hmm. thank you again. Thank um, you, listener. Um, and it, it was a and perfect p- length of email. Exactly yeah, the it was, right it amount was of great. words. And exactly the sort of thing that we that we hope to get when we say, if you know something about this, reach out. Um, because they did. And so now. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so um, this also uh, makes me realize that, like, we need to come up with a better mechanism for, like, corrections <laughs> than, like, hoping that people will listen <laughs> to future episodes. Uh, but that's a install me a that's suggestion a, box that's a, over at HQ. That's a that's a dirt problem, not a you yeah. problem, listeners. No, no now, listeners, not listeners. Your if you thought we weren't going to continue with the dirt at sea, jokes on you because we've lost sight of known shores and are seeing where the currents take us. For you see, dear listener, this week we're searching for Terra Nullius, mm, land of no one, no man's land. Nobody's. Well, not sort of. Not no man's land, not not no man's land in the sense of it being contested space bought over by two or more interests, um, which is like the legal definition of no man's land. Yes. I which wanna... when I was little, I th- always thought it was nomad's land. Oh. I, I That's how I heard it. And so oh. when I when I eventually saw it in print, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so I want to talk this week about. Places where no one lives and maybe no one has ever lived and that maybe aren't there at all. Wait, the places aren't there? Oh. <laughs> uh, the script says <laughs> interested noises. I know, Anna. but my interested noises turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe it's counterintuitive to have an episode of a podcast about anthropology to focus on places where people aren't. But this month's theme got me thinking about discovery and desert islands. And yes, Johnny Castaway. <laughs> um, and what it means to call a place uninhabited. Uh, but and first, who's doing the... the well, who's the doing the calling? calling? Yeah. Who's doing the uninhabiting? And also just are th- like, are there places where people literally are not? Um, so, but first... 
as always, allow me to define what we are and aren't talking about. <laughs> I will then talk about what we aren't talking about at great length. Um, <laughs> okay. You know me. We all know me. So um, terra nullius has a legal definition um, as a territory that has never been the subject of a sovereign state. So perhaps listeners, and judging by Anna's face right now, uh, Anna, are anticipating what I'm about to say next, which is uh, this system obviously works in favor of the person deciding who does and does not constitute a sovereign state. So... Terra nullius has a place in the history of settler colonialism and cases wherein, especially, uh, particularly cases wherein a colonizing force arrives at, say, the Americas or Australia or Africa or, you know, just not Europe. Um, they look around and they see that the people occupying this place are in what's referred to as a state of nature. So this this is because, you know, by this logic. Um, sovereignty comes with civilization, which comes with humanity. So, you know, you, as you civilize, you then get to be sort of self-determined and you get to have sovereignty. Um, so not all colonial land grabs are the, were, are the product of invoking terra nullius. Um, I don't want to give that impression, but I also don't want to give the impression that I know much about the history of international law because I don't. I like... <laughs> As somebody who like doesn't like laws or nations, international law is like not my bag. Um, but one example that I want to share that I hope I don't utterly bungle um, is in Australia. So beginning when colonizers showed up, Australia was considered by British imperial law to be settled and not conquered. So there's, there's distinctions there. Um, so English, so since it was settled in their mind, um, English common law was imported and seen as the only law since there were no states to conquer or territories to cede. So no laws to come up against and no treaties that needed to be made. So they, and so that's, that's the difference between settling and conquering. Um, so in 1992, uh, hmm. The case, the the case uh, Mabo versus Queensland came up before the High Court of Australia, and so um, in that case, an activist, uh, a man by the with the surname Mabo, um, was uh, agitating on behalf of um, indigenous rights to land on uh, Mare. Um, which is known as Murray Island, which is which is an island in the Torres Straits. Um, and so in this in this case in 92 um the it was a landmark case in which the high court of australia ruled that native title exists and according to wikipedia you know the the arbiter my, of all international <laughs> law my 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 lexus nexus um I'm just going to quote here. The court repudiated the notion of absolute sovereignty over Australia to the crown at the moment of European settlement. The court held rather that native title existed without originating from the crown. Native title would remain in effect unless extinguished by a loss of connection to the land. End quote. So this this was huge where they that it was the and late it, and in 92. Yeah. So. um so saying that the people who lived here when the British showed up owned it yep. and 
and they have they had title. So it is it was their land before we got here and it still can be unless they aren't there. I think is what so which is sort of an Loss issue. Loss of connection. Yeah, I mean maybe just that the the populations who lay claim to that land just don't have any more descendants. Or I think it might be more that they can't prove that mm. they have a connection to the land because it's okay. also so okay. So put simply, only in the past thirty years have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had any foothold in the Australian legal system as the owners of the continent, and and it appears and it appears to this very uneducated outside observer to be very complicated, very fraught, and very stacked against Indigenous land claims, um, because. Which we've you, never seen before. Well, because you, you are continents. You are because what they are doing. Because like, as well intentioned as as that that decision may have been, it still requires native title to be to be sort of shoehorned into the same pattern to a pattern that works with. Australian law, which comes from English common law, like the sort of playing like it's when you have to use the same ideas as ownership of of ownership of claim of like the sort of it's something that you have to play by those rules in order to get anywhere. And if you have structured your um, your own um connections or stewardship or whatever like however you define ownership if you define it at all um, you have to be able to prove on their terms that that it counts so I'm not trying to downplay the progress that activists and legal scholars have have given their lives to like well before 92 and like I mean really since for like 250 years before then. Um, I'm just trying to make it clear that like this one court case didn't undo hundreds of years of dispossession and genocide uh, that continue in, in like new forms. Um, so for our purposes today, um, we are not talking about that kind of terra nullius, like that legal sense. Um, I just want everyone to know that in many cases, no one's land meant something close to no one who we recognize as human or peers land. Yikes, um, yikes, but, yikes. But, but that's not that's not really what I'm going for here today. Um, so Terra Nullius also has a sense of uh, being a place uh, uh, where multiple states claim uninhabited land for whatever reason that I like really can't get my head around, um, such as the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, um, which this set of islands is administered by Japan, which like, what I does think, that mean? I think that means they just had like their coast guard just kind of pops around. Okay. you like still there, still got birds on it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also claimed by Taiwan and China. Just because so, it's there. I don't know. Um, so, so this is, there's like six ish islands here. Sure. And so the largest is four square kilometers, which is one and a half square miles. It's a small island. And the next, next largest is about a third of a square mile. So one square kilometer. And the others are literally just rocks, just rocks. Just, um, just and rocks above sea level. And there's, and birds live there. <laughs> birds yes. nest there. Yep. Um, so I don't, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like there are plenty of places that are claimed because there are because well, there's resources or there's re- yeah, or, basically. Or it it pushes your and maybe this is a case where it sort of pushes your um your your like oh, maritime your territory. territory. Yeah. Maybe maybe it makes but your borders I don't, bigger. I but I don't know. I don't get what's going on there. Depending um, on when these were claimed by these places, a big part of it might be because birds live there. Uh, a big part of it might be guano because yeah. is that? No. Well, okay. That is the case with some places, but this doesn't really seem to have. Um, it's not guano rich. Not like, and, and, and so it's, it doesn't seem worth the amount of resources mm. taken to, to even say it just sort of the amount of like the amount of like the amount of labor hours you're paying for someone to to even just like write something up to be like it's ours is it's it's just it's sort of absurd to me so the last example of things we're not talking about (laughs) that i thought that sort of like really pushes the needle like into the red on the absurdometer um, is a place called Rockall, which is a perfectly descriptive name for it. So it's a big chunk of granite hanging out in the North Atlantic and it's covered in bird poop. Um, that's it. That's it. Listed it, on Zillow for $1 million. Well, it's also, it also has the distinction of being the last territorial expansion of the British Empire. Huzzah. So in 1955, a couple military guys and a naturalist were, I think, because the term was winched, uh, put on it by a helicopter. <laughs> and, cause it's it really is, hard. It would be hard to winch someone from a boat. So, yeah. Yeah. Probably. Like, well, a helicopter was involved. I think they just okay. like put them down on it. Yeah. Because it is just a piece of granite that sticks up out of the ocean. Like you, yes. you can't really... Land on it. Just going to pop you down on this rock. And so they uh, put a flag in it and Mm. they cemented a brass plaque onto it, which I would like Anna to read now. By authority of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and uh, of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, etc., 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 that's there. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and in accordance with Her Majesty's instructions, dated 14955, a landing was effected on this day upon the island of Rock Hall from HMS Vidal. The Union flag was hoisted and possession of the island was taken in the name of Her Majesty. Signed, R.H. Connell, Captain HMS Vidal, 18th September, 1955. So I find that to be frankly embarrassing. Um that and again like that much the amount of work and like resources that was mm-hmm. invested in cementing a plaque for some birds to read um and just poop on it just <laughs> like i find that um i find that to be quite illustrative of the entire apparatus of monarchy <laughs> Yeah, but just sort of like that kind of like it's just silly. And also, put my they, name on this. They like reinforced their claim to it by some guy like lived on it for six weeks. Um, and <laughs> silly. 
Um, I hope he was paid well, because that sounds tough. Oh, he was a former like SAS guy who. Oh, he loved it. Yeah, I bet he loved it. Was Bear Girls? Was it Bear Girls? No, it wasn't Bear Girls. <laughs> it was um, no, because this was in the seven. I don't know. It was. It was it, silly. Uh, but for the rest of today, we're going to think about the places where no one lives, but with the understanding that people have tried to live and have indeed lived in most places on Earth, even if it didn't pan out long term. Um, so maybe there are stretches of geography on this planet with such very, very low population density that it's almost like no one is there. Or what if they weren't always there? Like every creation story I've ever heard has a beginning, like a time before any people, you know, were. Do those places still exist? Where aren't people? (laughs) Where aren't people? (laughs) Yep. So that's, I mean, that's the plan today, folks. Today we're talking about places on earth where people don't live, mostly. Except where they do. And actually, a little, little, I want to interject here and say, like, when I was looking for this or like looking for these lists of places where no one is or untouched places, like every one of them, it seemed like it would, you know, you'd click on it and it would be like, oh, but and then there's like a reference to people who live there. And it's just like, what are you doing here? Like North Sentinel Island was on one of those. And I'm just like, but the famously. People live there. (laughs) And so it was really challenging to find places where people aren't. Um, It's like really like proving a negative here. But um, I will endeavor to do that. Go go with. No, no, that's not. Again, not what we're doing. We're just feeling it out. Where aren't people? The term for this category of place is non-ecumene. Uninhabited or very sparsely populated regions of the world. Many such places are uninhabited big rocks or atolls in the middle of bodies of water. But apart from those, most almost to entirely uninhabited places are that way for one of four reasons. I will now list those reasons. (laughs) One, they're too hot. This is my list, (laughs) just so you know. (laughs) It's fine. This includes parts of Australia, a lot of the state of Nevada in the U.S., and much of the Sahara People definitely do live in or at least move through those places and have for thousands of years. Humans are adapted to be pretty efficient at cooling ourselves in hot climates. Thanks, sweat glands. But we do have our limits. Yeah, I tried to figure out how how hot was too hot. Like, are okay. there place I like are there desert environments where you just like seriously can't live? And I couldn't find anything helpful. But I would. So that's why I'm turning to you. Um, because the internet failed me but like how 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 do humans adapt like I tried to find hot weather adaptations and they were Mm -hmm. like oh air conditioning or a fan and I'm just like that's that's not an adaptation unless it's (laughs) within me like I would like a genetic air conditioner so can you tell me Anna about how we evolved air conditioners (laughs) I mean that's not an incorrect, it's a silly way to phrase it, but it's really, it's, that is sort of what happens. So up until about, let's say about a million years ago, okay, the members of our lineage were pretty hairy, more like a chimpanzee than 
you or or me. That, as you might imagine, uh, for humans evolving in the grasslands of Africa, warmish, right? Chimpanzees don't spend a lot of time out in the sun. They prefer cool, shady forests. Um, and so around probably 600,000 years ago with um, Homo erectus, um, it seems like, so Homo erectus was the first member of our genus to have the, the body plane that we have where it's got long legs and can run long distances pretty mm-hmm. easily. Um, and so this is something that Homo erectus used for hunting and hunting was something that they evolved to do during the day because the big predators with whom they shared the savanna landscapes did their hunting at night. And so if you are a smallish and extremely edible species bopping around the grasslands, you you want to be doing your hunting when the other big hunters aren't hunting you. Mm-hmm. And so around that time, it seems like, is when two things happened. We started to evolve lots more sweat glands you know, all over our body, but especially concentrations on our hands and the soles of our feet, um, palms of the hands and soles of the feet. Um, and also our hair got thinner and that doesn't mean we lost hair. So Amber, you and I both have roughly the same amount of hair follicles as a chimp. The number of follicles has stayed the same, but the hair itself has gotten thinner and downier. Um, and so we sweat more and because we have that. Sure do. (laughs) Specifically you and me. Yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, chimpanzees mostly pant. To cool themselves, they okay. can, they do sweat a little bit, but they mostly pant like dogs and other mammals do. Um, but we can release moisture and thus body heat from our, from all over our body. Do we uh, pant? Indeed we do. Can it we pant? We, you can, but it won't cool you off very much. It's not working. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we have this adaptation because sweat, the function of sweat. So it's just salt and water. Um, and the function of sweat is to evaporate. It comes out of sweat glands on our body. And as it comes out, it's, it's heated with our body heat. And then Mm -hmm. as it goes through evaporative cooling, evaporates from us and lowers our body temperature a little bit. So depending on how humid it is, a person can survive for several hours in temperatures around 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's with no humidity. No humidity. So you're in, you're in Palm Springs, California. And you are specifically Naomi's parents and you're texting Naomi. It's 119 out today. Uh, yeah. But, or it's, you know, it's like summer in it was like summer in the UAE when I went outside and my mascara immediately <laughs> melted. <laughs> like it was waterproof mascara, but it melted. <laughs> Woof. Um, so that's that's when there is zero to very little humidity. If it yeah. is humid, if it's too humid, the body loses its ability to release heat via sweat because the sweat won't evaporate. The air is yeah. already too saturated. Yeah. And so uh, this is something that Amber found a term for, which is wet bulb temperature, which I hate. It is, because it's literally taking a thermometer, like it comes from like, like literally getting that bulb wet. Yeah, no, of, I understand like, the concept. No, I'm explaining to the listeners. There are other people in our conversation, Diana. They just can't talk to. Them. They can't talk back. Um, where you you would take like a a water soaked cloth and yes. wrap it around the the bulb of the thermometer. So it 
because the sensation it is it is hotter it becomes hotter the yes. the and so like Anna like something that people who are in my friendship with Anna would know is Anna hates the real field temperature and becomes like old man yells at cloud about it yeah and, and so I'm I'm there's hoping only a to couple int- things that make me do that but. <laughs> I'm hoping to introduce wet bulb temperature. <sighs> I just don't. I don't like that combination <laughs> of words. But but yeah. So like at no humidity, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, at like the wet at bulb, lots of humidity. Yeah. At yeah, the most humidity. That's yeah. it's 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, so that's why 25 degrees different. When people are like, "Oh, it's a dry heat," it's like actually like it does make it a does, difference. Yeah. Like, it's still obnoxious, I, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nobody wants to hear that, but it is. And it's also something that is brought to bear relevant. on um, um, like global climate change and, and mm. increasing temperatures in different places. Mm. Um, they can be, it's much deadlier depending on where it is. Yes. Okay. So that was category one. Too hot. Yes. Category two in our... In- in our Goldilocks and the three and my very bears. yeah my very scientific uh, schema here yeah they're too cold <laughs> this includes stretches of the Arctic which again people have been living in and moving through these regions for thousands of years but it is a very harsh environment and livability depends on the amount of available resources even for small populations people have to be able to hunt or fish or gather enough to eat and to either be able to continue doing so during harsher seasons or preserve and store enough food ahead of time to last through scarcities. And so th- this is why you see so much smoked, dried, fermented, and otherwise preserved food as part of the culinary history of most cultures. Not to suggest that these preservation methods are things of the past. They're still very much part of most cuisines. Just that yeah. they've been around for a long time. Yeah, people figured out what was working and kept doing it. Stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so in this part, it's sort of like a, it's not that people have never been there. It's that it's really they might tough not have for stuck them to around stay. there. Yeah. It's, so yeah, one of these too cold places is St. Matthew's Island, which sits between Alaska and Siberia, which is a big old stretch of not a lot going on above the water. So Amber found a 2020 article in Smithsonian Magazine by way of Hakai Magazine, I guess. I think they reprinted it. Reprinted it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Written by Sarah Gilman that details the author's trip to St. Matthew's Island. The title of the piece sets a tone that stuck out to me. And I'm going to, Amber, I'm going to try to have you help me crystallize that. Great. Quote, (laughs) the Alaskan island that humans can't conquer. Far away St. Matthew Island has had its share of visitors, but none can remain for long on its shores. End quote. So the article is framed like, isn't it crazy that humans can't live here? It's interesting uh, that you took that from it. Well, and maybe I'm reading too much into that, but here are some, some excerpts of, of verbiage from the article along mm-hmm. the same lines. So St. Matthew's Island is marooned in the Bering Sea halfway to Siberia. To set foot on this scatter of land surrounded by endless ocean is to feel yourself swallowed by the nowhere at the center of a drowned compass rose. Because St. Matthew is so far flung, the solitary pit house, which is like a Thule house, Mm -hmm. suggests that even Alaska's expert seafaring indigenous peoples may never have been more than accidental visitors here. 
Others who followed have arrived with the help of significant infrastructure or institutions. None remained long. Uh, and then lastly, in reference to polar bear hunting on St. Matthew, even after the bears were gone, the archipelago remained a difficult place for people. The fog was endless. The weather, a banshee. The isolation, extreme. So I'm I'm not trying to criticize Sarah Gilman here. This is a, it's a really well-written article and it was a pleasure to read. I thought it was really interesting, but I am trying to distill how I feel about it. And I think it's nagging at me that the piece plays with the idea that humans are we're we're an invasive species capable of of living anywhere and so places where humans have repeatedly been unsuccessful at living are these novelties to be marveled at but maybe it doesn't matter like can we deal with landscapes independent of whether they're hospitable for us or do we have this kind of baked in evolutionary sense of like trying to categorize places as good or not good for living because that would have been a really key uh, aspect of, of survival is just like establishing whether a place has enough resources. Um, help? Well, I think that, um, I don't think that we're talking about a baked in evolutionary instinct. I think we're talking about a baked in, um, aspect of travel writing. So this is, so this author is a travel writer. And so I, I loved this article because at first, like it was the one that I opened, I looked and it's like, no one's been there. And it's like, there's a, house house. (laughs) like like someone went there and they had built a house but actually reading it um i i thought it was very um i mean you have you are the one of the two of us who has been anywhere close to this part of the world Mm -hmm. um and has you have spoken to sort of the like vastness of the of the landscape and i think that what's um I found this to be very evocative of just sort of coming to terms with a place that um, in almost a cosmic sense that people don't belong. Yeah, that like your this time is not here for is, you. That your time here is limited. And so I think that it's really effective in tr- in the sense of travel writing because mm. travel writing is sort of sort of like to take people places that they dream of going and all this stuff. And it's like, this is a nightmare. Like this place sucks. And <laughs> and like that. The that weather's kind of, a banshee. That, that this kind of place of like, this is because we are told, like we, like we are told that like humans can live anywhere and, and Just that maybe not, maybe not here. Yeah. And that like, there are places that that's not the case. And so it's, it feels hmm. so looking at this as, as sort of like a, um, a place that is, that is cursed or like has bad vibes, but from like a, a, like an environmental sense of just like, there are places that are like beyond the kin of man that it's just sort of like this place sucks for us. And, um, and that it isn't. And, 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 you know, I think that rightfully people often think that um, uh, like rightfully people are told like, no, there, there are places that may not be favorable to sort of like, uh, like capitalist endeavors or like settler colonial expansion or things like that, but they are very much home to somewhere just because you don't think people should like, should live there or want to live there or, or could, or, or could much less like thrive. Like people, like there are plenty of people who are part of these communities or who are, are trying to speak up on behalf of these communities or whatever to say like, no, the reality of our planet is that there are people living in, um, living and doing 
just fine. Like they aren't eking out. They don't an need. Existence. They don't need rescuing. Yeah, they they aren't eking out an existence, waiting for like the light of civilization. Like they're doing just fine. Like St. Matthew's Island is one of those places where that's not the case. No, like, it's just really, really hard to live there. Like people who go, people who get there have ended up there. And I think that this, this, this article does a really good job of sort of expressing that, that kind of existential fear that comes with it. Uh, Maybe that's just what like, I was reacting to. Yeah. Just like, that, oh. that it's, that it's, that it's like thinking about like, if you were, the uh you know the 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 tool like the the people who show up who who ended up there whether they meant to or not or maybe it was a short-term thing and built the like tooly whalebone house mm-hmm. and like maybe they um and thinking like maybe they made it through the season so that until they could like leave all over the ice yeah. and and sort of like people getting shipwrecked there this idea of uh, and then also like if you see the, the the person who told them like if you see something big and white make sure you look at it twice of uh, just yeah. sort of like might be a bear it might be a polar bear which will eat you and and it's just sort of this this sense of uh, of just being like completely out of your depth that made me think about like if you were like in space or like in the middle of the ocean like, but you're on land and still it's so awful <laughs> and, <laughs> and so like this i thought was a really good example of places where people have been but they don't, they don't care like to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay but what about another place that people haven't been or have they have they antarctica the nulliest of terra's nullius no indigenous population there right people didn't get there till like 1950 right or like uh, 48 is when the first like uh, was put in place like a is that the like a camp the, or an outpost or a research center the, the, the like sound of think. an encampment happening <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then, the and then this freaked me out uh, from the bbc quote in 1985, a unique skull was discovered lying on Yamana Beach at Cape Sheriff in Antarctica's South Shetland Islands. It belonged to an indigenous woman from southern Chile in her early 20s, thought to have died between 1819 and 1825. It was unique because it was person. Yep. <laughs> it was the oldest known human remains ever found in Antarctica. The location of the discovered skull, and indeed the skull itself, was unexpected. It was found at a beach camp made by sealers, so seal hunters, in the early 19th century near remnants of her femur bone, yet female sealers were unheard of at the time. There are no surviving documents explaining how or why a young woman came to be in in Antarctica during this era. Now, at nearly 200 years old, the skull is thought to align with the beginning of the first known landings on Antarctica. So this has implications for who the land belongs to. Um... The earliest political treaty between nations laying claim to Antarctica, there are seven, was in 1959. This is mine. No, this is mine. But there was a change. There's a change to that treaty made in 1998. Quote. In 1998, a protocol on environmental protection was added. It states that Antarctica is to be a natural reserve devoted to peace and science and prohibits all activities related to Antarctic mineral resources, except as is necessary for scientific research. But this is not set in stone forever. 
In 2048, 50 years after the protocol was created, this part of the treaty could come under review. That is the date when the prohibition on mining and resource extraction could, and it's a big could, be altered or done away with. And so... And a similar thing is happening with the moon right now. <sighs> and and also like the idea of like governments can't do it, but non-governments can do it. So we're going to end up having like Antarctica X and and just privatized. Sort of like, no, like like the like hyper capitalist. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and so. But there's but also there's a part of um, Antarctica, Marie Birdland, um, named after Mrs. Admiral Bo- Admiral Bird, um, that is not covered by any of these. So it is actually terra nullius in the legal hmm. sense. Um, and I just, again, this is, so this is the thing that makes sense to me. I think it's dumb, but it makes sense to me that you would have, um, sovereign nations in the global North that claim parts of a place that no one lives because of like mining opportunities yeah. and like the idea of like, well, we aren't necessarily going to do anything with it, but we don't want to let anyone else do anything with it. No, this dibs. is, so dibs. this makes more sense to me than like rock all. Which, which is just rock all. Which, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So we got too hot, too cold. What's next? Too high. <laughs> um, beyond 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet above sea level. It's thought that acclimatization is never possible and humans cannot survive indefinitely without supplemental oxygen. This is called the death zone. And there are about 100 mountains in the Himalayas that approach or exceed that threshold. People don't live there. Too high. Atmospheric pressure at base camp at Sagarmata or Chumalungma or Mount Everest is half that of sea level. And at the summit, it's less than a third. Our bodies just don't work there. Outside Asia, the highest mountain is 189 on the list. Aconcagua, which is in the Andes, and it's about 22,838 feet or 6,961 meters. And so, yeah, like just hard to think like (laughs) high outside of Asia. (laughs) Number 189. Like it's just it is this place is so high altitude. Yep. I'm feeling kind of short of breath just thinking about it. Even though people don't live in the death zone, they do and have lived in high altitude environments like the Himalayas and the Andes. And so um, there is a very cool article that will be in the show notes about adaptations to high altitudes in those parts of the world. Basically our ability, like those populations abilities to, um, to get oxygen in their blood so yeah. get get oxygen out of the air around them because that's that's the thing about atmospheric pressure. There's just less oxygen in it. Um, yeah, that's and so acclimatization is something that your body does. It is the ability to start producing more and more red blood cells, which yeah. help you get all that sweet sweet oxygen that you need to live. Yeah, up to a point, and then yeah. and then long term populations, there are there are sort of. Uh, selective strategies that have have led to those populations being more effective in in doing that and so Um, the the adaptation article that you flagged amber was from 2004 i want to talk about uh something a little bit later um from science magazine okay i'm going to quote for you okay quote 
Researchers discovered in 2010 that Tibetans have several genes that help them use smaller amounts of oxygen efficiently, allowing them to deliver enough of it to their limbs while exercising at high altitude or just like existing at high altitude. (laughs) Most notable is a version of a gene called EPAS1, which regulates the body's production of hemoglobin. Okay. They were surprised, however, scientists, not Tibetans, by how rapidly the variant of EPAS1 spread. Initially, they thought it spread in 3,000 years through 40% of high-altitude Tibetans, which, in genetic terms, is incredibly fast. Um, in terms of, like, needing to, like, have genes propagate through generations. yeah. To have 3,000 years and have 40% of high-altitude Tibetans affected, too fast. So these researchers wondered where that gene came from. Amber, do you know where it came from? Did this come from somebody who isn't homo sapiens? Yes. Oh, my God. What? (laughs) So this gene, they matched this gene to Denisovans. So not like a Yeti. Not, uh, I mean, what do you say to someone who's not homo sapiens? They're not homo sapiens, but they're not. I know, I know. I was thinking Denisovans, but I was like, I will leave the possibility open. <laughs> no, um, no, Denisovans. So um, Denisovan populations seem to have existed up in the Tibetan plateau, among other places. And so it appears that in that population, a gene, uh, a genetic adaptation helped with um, acclimatization at high altitudes and that got passed along to populations of homo sapiens and the people still living there today big proportion of tibetans on up on the plateau in high altitudes have that gene isn't that cool that is so cool yeah oh so cool okay so Lastly. we got too hot too cold too up too too up <laughs> too down Nope, mm-hmm. too wet. No. <laughs> too, too wet. Yeah, so oh, the too wet bulb oceany. temperature. Oh, no, <laughs> no yeah. places you can't live because well, I mean, pla- no places people are thought not to live because they are too oceany, as in <laughs> the ocean. But a twist, people live there too. Uh, so the Sama Bajau Laut, which are a, so, a group. So Sama is yes. their name. Mm-hmm. Bajau is the X and M and Lao okay. means people. Okay. So the so, Sama. So Sama Bajau. Yeah. That's sort of how they're commonly referred to. But yeah. Okay. That's, that's what, what's going call on Call them there. the Sama. Yeah. yeah. Popularly referred to as sea nomads in travel blogs and the like. Also uh, the G word that we don't use yeah. to describe people who travel the, around. The CG slurs. Yeah. Woof. Uh, that, but so, that's what you would see like in like I know, a travel no, I know. blog or like a I YouTube know. video. And indeed just, I did when I looked them up. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a quote from the Wikipedia entry. A few Sama slash Bajau still live traditionally. They live in houseboats, which generally accommodate a single nuclear family around five people. The houseboats travel together in flotillas. I just love the word flotilla. With houseboats of immediate relatives, a family alliance, and cooperate during fishing expeditions and in ceremonies. A married couple may choose to sail with the relatives of the husband or the wife. That's nice. They anchor at common mooring points, called sambongan, with other flotillas, usually also belonging to extended relatives, at certain times of the year. 
And yeah, uh, so they don't live like free, freely in the ocean. It's not water world. Well, they're on boats in water world. I'm saying they aren't like dolphins. Like that's what oh. I'm saying. Like, like, cause I, um, like people who like live in the ocean. I was just like, just like they do what? Just swimming? No, <laughs> just <laughs> tootling around in big unicorn floaties. Well, no, I was just thinking the people who just like swim or float or you know, like how like other mammals do in the ocean. We're talking about like you had nomads land. This is me. <laughs> This okay. is my child, okay. like my childhood, like not understanding how it works. In the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe on is a better yeah. uh, preposition to use there. Uh, but also the, um, I thought this was interesting. The modern outward spread of the Sama from older inhabited areas seems to have been associated with the development of sea trade in sea cucumber. Huh. Huh. Yeah. So what about the ocean ocean? The serious ocean. The part that's none of Amber's business. It's just stamped with a nah. Just, nah. No thanks. In 2019, the record was set for deepest dive by <laughs> explorer and businessman Victor Vescovo, who Funny made a descent. Go together so frequently. Mm. Disposable income. Who made a descent of 35,853 feet, which is 10,927 meters, into the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean. The trip, oh, I hate this. The trip took somewhere between three and a half and four hours. And according to a live science story, quote, it was chilly. It was quiet, end quote. And in Vescovo's own words, quote, it was so very peaceful. I was surrounded by enormous pressure, but I was safely cocooned in my technological bubble. That's what you think. End quote. Three and no, end a half quote hours that. of just I hate down. It. Just down and dark and just silent. wait. Just down. Well, he talked about like he he was like when he went down, like when he was down there, he spent a while just like hanging out and like ate a tuna fish sandwich. Oh, that seems like tempting it's fate somehow isn't that just like i know talking about like they'll know <laughs> god just he hears like excuse oh. me <laughs> oh no that's like <laughs> so uh one guy or you know a series of guys over the past 60 or so years descending down into the depths of the ocean in a technological bubble it's exciting and mind-blowing and terrifying, but does it necessarily qualify as humans being there? I would argue no. He was existing in his little bubble. Now, Anna, mm. I'm I'm introducing something philosophical here by oh. saying being in italics. I know, but just okay. Are we there? I mean, our presence is felt. Yes. So here's another take on that. During previous expeditions, little shellless crustaceans called amphipods, which, you know, shellless crustaceans, they look like peeled shrimp. They're just, just little. Just, they just, just look like peeled shrimp. Just a little like, oh, I'm naked. Uh, so they were tested, these little amphipods, and they were found to have microplastics in their gut, 36,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. Talk about trickle down economics. And then, during the record-setting dive, something even more obvious pointed to human impact. So here's from the Life Science article again. Quote, Sitting there in the deepest point of the planet, Vescovo also came across a plastic bag and candy wrappers. End quote. 
So yes, we're there. We're there. But we're there. So let's take a break so we can stare bleakly into the middle distance for a while. And when we come back, we'll tackle some places humans have definitely impacted. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we are here for what might be the shortest segment in Dirt History because I had to add it at the end because I forgot. And now the script is long. Called, when did people get there? <laughs> when did people get there? Um, so, so Anna, we, we've talked a lot about people getting there. Yes. Um, Which there are you most interested in? Well, I, I'm just, um, I mean, <laughs> just in, in general, like we've, we've been, we've been around, we've been, mm-hmm. a, we've been around before we were even homo sapiens, right? We've been getting around. Yeah, so Homo erectus is the first species in our lineage to leave Africa. And so there are populations of Homo erectus that you'll see in South Asia. So Java man might ring a bell. Um, And there are populations in the Levant that reached there. So there were Neanderthals living in the Levant. Yep, they ate all the people. They ate... mm, uh, <laughs> God. And um, so sort of thinking about it on continent by continent level. So yeah. humans originated in Africa, um, made it to Australia by around 65,000 years ago, 65 to 50,000 okay. years ago. Um, it seems like, and, and this is contentious because, you know, but peopling of the Americas was around... 20,000 years ago, 25,000 years ago. Um, and then, so talking about Asia and West Asia, that's where you see colonization by people who like pre homo sapiens humans. Um, so okay. Denisovans and Neanderthals and Homo erectus. And so by about, let's say by about 20,000 years ago, we were pretty much everywhere except okay. Antarctica. Well, wow. like pretty much every, everywhere right. that was accessible. Let's say that. Or were we? Hmm. I, so that, but thanks. So you gave me a lot of very big numbers. And I did. like, and that's sort of like what we think about a lot when we think about like, oh, we got there. Like we got there except St. Matthew's Island, which sucks. Like that kind of idea. <laughs> we got there and went, um, nope. 
<laughs> or we got there and went, oh no, and then never went again uh, because we died there. Um, so I want to like, now I'm going to talk about uh, modernity or like not 20,000 years ago. Uh, I want to give some examples of, of some of the latest first times anyone settled somewhere. So ones that probably come to mind to for our anthropologically minded listeners uh, might include Rapa Nui, which um, is thought to have been permanently settled by about 750 CE, give or take a few hundred years. Um, and Aotearoa, New Zealand, which was permanently settled by around 1250 CE. So, you know, like a thousand ish years ago, which... Um, in the like, say so. Okay, so so going, um, but like sixty thousand years to yeah, a thousand like, years. Like Aotearoa it's, is like pretty like close in the yeah. scheme of things to yeah. Australia. So like it took fifty nine thousand years for people <laughs> to get in. Like granted, like not the same populations, but just sort of just thinking about moving Anyone. around the yeah. globe of somebody who counts as person. Um, so. <laughs> In the, in the grand scheme of human movement, that's super recent. But what if I told you that there were even more recent first settlements than that? Tell me. Okay. So um, we got the Azores and Cabo Verde, uh, which are in the Atlantic. Uh, and they were first settled in 1439 and 1462, respectively, by the Portuguese. Can I because- ask a que- question? Yes. Um when you say settled, like people started living there or people, it was like they claimed it? No, no, no. I did, I'm not playing that game. Uh, okay. Because there's a Just long checking. list of people who showed up and they were like, ours? Um, or they were like, or, you know, people getting shipwrecked or people like okay. having a whaling station set up there. Okay. Like, so I'm when not we say settled, I'm saying there. like settlers moved and- there. Okay. With the idea of settling a place. And they're like the first ones to do that. Um, so those two, because the Portuguese were really the ones that got it going in the mm. like age of sure discovery. Um, Ooh, so found that. Whoop. Found that. And, and like for the most part, didn't discover things, but we'll get to that in a second. So the Chatham Islands, um, which, are in the Pacific. Um, they were first settled in 1500-ish, 1500-ish uh, CE. Um, and they were settled um, by Moriori um, from Aotearoa, New Zealand. So they are descendants of, well, mm, descendants of, common descendants with the Maori. So, um so they were the they constituted the last wave of Polynesian migration. So it was so even though we famously think about Rapa Nui as kind of being the last place, um, like the furthest place, it, it wasn't it wasn't the last place because the Chatham Islands. Um, so in 1638, uh, the Dutch sailing community um, settled in Mauritius. And, and so, so that's one where people hadn't been, hadn't lived before. So the Seychelles, um, had previously been visited by Arabs, uh, Malays and Maldivians, um, because it's on the way. There's also a lot of Seychelles, <laughs> um, like, uh, 
as part of the Indian Ocean Trade Network, the Maritime Trade Network, but nobody stayed there until uh, the French established a settlement there in 1770. Um, so Christmas Island uh, was first settled in 1888. Um and today is very famous for its coconut crabs, its resorts, and its concentration camp. Uh, it's the Immigration Reception and Processing Center. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a place where they put asylum seekers. Um, so really like... What a range. What a range, yeah. Um, and then Anna... Maybe you mm. want to respond to this infographic that I've included. Uh, it was created by Bill Rankin, um, who is a Yale historian of science and historian of cartography and creator of radical cartography um, and also author of a book that I can't find in my room right now. That's very good. Uh, and and in this infographic, which I'll link for the show in the show notes, he provides the most damning with faint praise. You got to hand it to him about the European age of discovery. Mm hmm. And so the, the nations represented on this map are Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, France, Russia, United States, Austria, Hungary, and Norway. And boy, the Portuguese really had a monopoly going, didn't they? My goodness. Well, um, and also just like. It's just this clusters is, of this, stuff. This is no, this is what was discovered and what was actually discovered was like super small <laughs> Yeah, Super little islands, islands out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, because everyone was living everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And even Great. some of those are places where people had lived before but didn't live anymore. Like the like like the pit, like Pitcairn Island was, yeah. uh, it had been abandoned. Um, and then people came back and it's not been going great it. in Pitcairn Island. Mm. Uh, All right, well... Let's now go back to unpopulated places or people, the places, where, places where the people aren't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the United States, there's a specific legal definition for wilderness identified in the aptly titled Wilderness Act of 1964, which says, quote, a wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. An area of wilderness is further defined to mean, in this act, an area of undeveloped federal land retaining its primeval character and influence without permanent improvements or human habitation, which is protected and managed so as to preserve its natural conditions and which... One, generally appears to have been affected primarily by the forces of nature, with the imprint of man's work substantially unnoticeable. Two, has outstanding opportunities for solitude or a primitive and unconfined type of recreation. And three, has at least 5,000 acres of land or is of sufficient size as to make practicable its preservation and use in an unimpaired condition. And four... This is the longest sentence ever written. May also contain ecological, geological, or other features of scientific, educational, scenic, or historical value. So that's wilderness. Settler construct. Wah, wah, yeah. wah. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the rest of this section, so I, I thought it would be helpful to talk, just like it's helpful to talk about 
and then talk about how we're not talking about terra nullius as a as a construct thinking about wilderness as a settler as a construct and it is indeed a like settler colonial construct um so the rest of this section is just a roundup of places i found in my quests for places that people aren't that like completely blew my mind so most of these was just like me like them being like oh this one and then me being like there's a person (laughs) okay um but who took this picture (laughs) well not not even who took this picture just like that there's there's a guy guy there (laughs) that's that's his house uh yeah (laughs) um and so this is really just going to be a list of anna telling you places that you should google which are like relatively pristine in an ecological sense like where there are in some cases like uh like relict environments mm-hmm. that are just like impossibly beautiful um but if you want to see a place that's got a bunch of guys in it what are these guys? guys? What, oh, who they're are bears. these guys? Yeah, they're bear, bears. Bear yeah. guys. Okay. Yeah, bears. Yeah. Bears, so, yeah. yeah. The Kamchatka Peninsula, which uh, is the land of fire and ice. Mm, which is off the coast of Russia. Uh, it's also, in addition to being full of bears, it's also full of volcanoes. Um, the volcanoes specifically are protected by UNESCO. Bears on their own. Well... Uh, and so the unesco website says quote the sites contain great species diversity including the world's largest known variety of salmonoid fish salmonoid salmonoid sound like aliens i know um but you know it is and exceptional concentrations of sea otter brown bear and stellar's sea eagle end quote um so next we've got a, a geological type of formation which is a tepui uh, Tepuis in what's today Venezuela and Guyana. And so Tepuis are formed by remnants of a humongous sandstone plateau that used to shelter the granite's understructure between the Orinoco and Amazon basin in the northern border and uh, amid the Rio Negro and the Atlantic coastline. So these are just like huge, tall platforms, like yeah. really flat. Just um, like super flat, super straight up and down. Everything and- has been eroded around them. Um, it looks like somebody like punched it up out of the mm-hmm. earth. It's yeah. really freaky to look at. They're anyone gorgeous. Who, anyone who really enjoyed the the um, Avatar: The Last Airbender cartoon, something that an earthbender might go and punch up into the sky. Yep, my people know who they are. Uh, great, <laughs> um, but unfortunately, because they are so sort of striking, they're often characterized in the following two ways uh, which i saw from national geographic sir yeah mysterious islands in the sky or lost worlds like stop that well like the the lost world was inspired by one yes but yeah so there's so they've been at it for a while but it is like really Hmm. so it's like it's not a place that people spend a lot of time and they they are very how would they like, get up there for one thing they're very like sacred places yeah and like of of, of course uh, they would be like <laughs> if you just go google it and yeah, imagine google yourself it. standing at ground level and just feel small yeah. yeah um this reminds me um there's a similar thing to tepuis um in redwood trees so a lot of the time redwood trees are so tall mm-hmm. that oftentimes they'll either have 
um, areas in sort of the um, the forks of branches where mm-hmm. sediment has accumulated enough to start growing things, or if a tree gets like snapped off in a storm or or sort of loses its top, the platform of the tree itself will be this whole open meadow within the canopy of redwood trees. So you'll have this but are totally there sp- different ecosystem. But are there like species that only live there and don't live? There are species that elsewhere? prefer those areas. Yes. Okay. Well, in the case of tapways, like there are species that only exist there. I mean, I can see where a population would be isolated up there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And then this last one that I included mostly just to like freak Anna out because it was just like, what? It didn't. I mean, it's gorgeous. Just like, no, just like, just like that there are places that are like that, that are places that are places that aren't. People aren't. Yep. So this is Sunday. You can pay $3,000 to go. So the place that Amber's talking about <laughs> that we've ruined is Sun Dune Cave in Vietnam. It's one of the world's largest natural caves. So the first record of discovery of this place was in 1991 by a local man who was searching the surrounding forest for agarwood, which is a valuable timber. Um, he initially went to investigate further, but was discouraged upon approach by the sound of rushing water and strong wind issuing from the entrance. Smart move, my guy. So he just went, meh. And by the time he returned to his home, he had forgotten the exact location of the entrance. Later, he mentioned his discovery in passing to two members of the British Cave Research Association who were (laughs) exploring in the local area. They asked him to attempt to rediscover the entrance, which he eventually managed to do in 2008. And in 2009, he led an expedition from the British Cave Research Association to the entrance um, and so they conducted a survey of the cave and gave its volume as, you ready? 38,500,000 square meters. Oh. It's, it's really big. And you can do like a tour of it. A virtual walking tour. On, yeah. on National Geographic's website. And um, Beautiful. Vast. The the guy who discovered it. Hokan. Hokan. So yeah. Hokan is still involved. So in, so a few years later. They started, um, they allowed the first visitors and it was like $3,000 a head. Um, And there is a place called like Oxalis Tours and they have like exclusive caving access, like rights to it or whatever. And um, um, Ho Khan is still involved in it. So there's that, but it is sort of like it has been commodified. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. Hello, listeners. Future Anna here editing the episode. And this one went kind of long. So if you want to hear the full version where we talk for another approximately 20 to 25 minutes about Terra Nullius, you have two options. You can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and become a dirt pod dirt bag member at any of the attractively priced tiers and you get bonus content. And one of those tiers includes deep cuts where the rest of this episode will go. You can also support the APN and become an APN member. And the longer version of the episode will be available there for you as well. So thank you so much for your support and we love you and we will see you next week. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.